You're listening to a recorded teaching from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week four. We were unable to gather this week due to some heating issues at the church, but are thankful we can still get this content out to you. Today's teaching is on Exodus 4:18 through 6:30. Thanks for joining us. Hello, friends. I'm disappointed we couldn't be together this week, but it's still a joy to open the Word of God with you. So when we were putting the teaching schedule together for this semester, I laughed out loud when I realized that I was going to have to teach this week. There's some awkward verses in this passage, and I did not know how I was going to explain them. Um, But in my personal life, I don't want to be the kind of disciple of Christ that ignores the difficult or confusing things that we find in Scripture. And as a teacher, that means I need to be willing to deal with those things with you. And so that's what we're going to do today. After all, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. Amen. So let's go. We're picking it up today in Exodus 4.18. This is immediately following Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. And you may have noticed, but Moses isn't fully transparent with Jethro about why he's heading back to Egypt. He's probably still struggling with self-doubt, inadequacy, but regardless, he packs up his family and he goes. And the Lord is clear in verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Speaking of difficulties in scripture, this is our first encounter with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And you're going to see this phrase over and over again as we get into the plagues. This is a sticking point for most people. Have the courage to ask the questions that come to mind. Just write them down. Bring them to the Lord. When you feel that tension of reading something in black and white and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Don't just sweep it under the rug. Let me shoot straight with you. I think our subconscious fear is that we'll uncover something about God that would tarnish his character or maybe make him less trustworthy or less desirable. And the truth is, there is no duplicity in him. It's our understanding that's limited and biased. We must allow the word of God to inform us of who he is, not the other way around. So let this simmer as you study, especially in this upcoming week, and Chris is going to walk us through this in next week's teaching. So continuing on, in verse 22, God goes on to call Israel his firstborn son. And you looked at this in your homework. Last week, Julie did a great job of laying out the contrast of God being high and lifted up, and yet also intimate and near. We have the privilege of knowing God as Abba Father, but the Israelites didn't yet know him as such. This was God like marking his people, if you will. Every human bears the image of God, but the Israelites were to resemble him in a particular way that would set them apart from the people around them. We understand this resemblance thing on a human level, right? So we say, oh, look at those freckles. Isn't she just the spitting image of her mama? 
Likewise, when the pagans observed the peculiarities of Israel, they were meant to see the spitting image of Israel's God. May it also be said of us. God then takes this defensive posture over his children. That's kind of how I picture it. Declaring that he will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son if his own son is not set free. So in addition to the signs God gave Moses, he also warned him of this impending plague. And then this strange little story is stuck into the narrative. And what in the world is going on here? Let's read it. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So this is clear as mud, right? In your homework, we asked you to try to summarize what you think was happening. I wish you would have had a chance to discuss this in your group. The fact of the matter is, the original language of these verses is ambiguous, so even scholars don't agree on exactly what is happening here. But I think it can serve as a great example of what to do when we run into passages like this. Interpreting scripture always begins with asking questions. That's what I was just saying about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. What do you need to better understand to be able to explain this in your own words? For instance, I have questions like, whose life is in danger? Why didn't Moses circumcise his son? How did Zipporah even know what to do? And what does her comment mean? After we've asked the questions, then we're going to consider the context of the chapter and the context of the whole story of Exodus. Does it remind you of any other verses or themes in scripture? How can we piece this together? Sometimes when you go through all of that, you still don't know, and that's okay. Like I said, there aren't definitive answers on this passage. I'm sorry to disappoint you. When I feel like I hit a dead end, I say to myself, okay, so there's a lot of things I still don't know, but what do I know? Let's nail down the facts. First of all, there's this issue of circumcision. We had you read Genesis 17 for some context on that. Circumcision was an outward sign of God's covenant. His people were physically marked in a way that constantly reminded them of his covenant promises. They belonged to the Lord. Secondly, this seems to take place while they're en route back to Egypt. Moses' son was obviously not circumcised. We're not told why. And somehow, Zipporah knew that the lack of circumcision was the problem. We can conclude this because God relents as soon as the circumcision is done. So there are my facts. After I did my own study, and because I had to teach this, I consulted the commentaries. The most common interpretation is this. Moses' son wasn't circumcised probably because his Midianite wife didn't agree with the Hebrew practice. But he's stepping into this huge calling where he will eventually serve as the covenant mediator between God and Israel. That's kind of a big deal. He must exemplify obedience and get his house in order, so to speak. 
God threatens his life in some way as a consequence for not circumcising his son. Moses is incapacitated, and so Zipporah has to step in and perform the circumcision. Once the deed is done, God relents from his wrath. That's roughly the story that you'll find in most commentaries. But may I be honest with you? I don't agree with this interpretation. And that puts me in the minority of those who have written on this. Our study group was actually divided as well. Because the original language isn't clear, there is room for different opinions. Good commentators will acknowledge that and say, this is a probable explanation. I actually lean more towards the idea that Gershom may be the one in danger of death. I think we have some context clues, the mention of sonship right before, and knowing what was coming in the Passover, that there was going to be this clear distinction made between the sons of Egypt and the sons of God's covenant community. But I'm not here to defend my interpretation. It still has holes, just like the other one does, simply because we don't have all the facts. So I hold it open-handedly. I could be completely wrong. We never want to shout on matters where the Bible whispers. This is certainly not a hill to die on. But the point is this. The details don't actually alter the timeless truths in this passage. And I will shout about those things because they are abundantly clear. First of all, Moses is responding to God's enormous calling on his life. But that doesn't negate the need for unseen, everyday obedience in the things that seem less important. There's a lesson for all of us in that. And regardless of the details, can you see God's character? He comes in wrath, but doesn't immediately strike them dead. Instead, they're given a chance to course correct. Their bloody act of obedience averts the wrath of God. And that should sound awfully familiar. And so we can hold fast to these truths and not be derailed by the unknowns. There's still much we don't know, but there's also much we do know. At the close of chapter 4, God brings Aaron out into the wilderness to meet up with Moses. So they're coming from two different directions, right? Moses is coming from the east over in Midian, and Aaron's coming from the west, from Egypt. And they're meeting in the middle at Sinai. Do you think Moses was nervous to talk with his brother, who was still living in slavery? We're not told, but God was obviously preparing Aaron's heart. He partners with Moses without objection. And they finish that last leg of the journey together. Once back in Egypt, they assemble the elders of Israel to speak the words and perform the signs of the Lord. In verse 31, we get the people's response. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So we have a verbal message and visible signs from God through Moses and Aaron, and the people responded in belief. Hold on to that thought, because we're going to see how quickly things change in the next chapter. Let's continue reading in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Notice Moses opens with a simple request. He's not immediately asking Pharaoh to just release them off from slavery, but rather that they'd have the freedom to worship their God. And we see Pharaoh's heart condition in his response. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know this Lord. If you didn't mark this verse in your text, I would recommend that you do so. This opening statement from Pharaoh is critical to understanding the bigger battle that's being played out on this stage. Remember how Chris explained Moses is a type of Christ? So not only was he a real man in this historical account, but the added layer is that God has woven foreshadowing of salvation into his life and story. So we say Moses is a type and Jesus Christ is the archetype or the original. And likewise, Pharaoh is a type, but for the opposite team. In his example, we see the depravity of sin exposed for what it is. Sin is ultimately a rejection of God. We can see it in the Garden of Eden all the way through to our own lives today. Whatever the identifiable sin may be, so pride, unbelief, idolatry, the heart condition is that we're not submitting to who God is and his design for life. We think we can govern ourselves according to our own understanding. When you read Pharaoh's words here, I want you to hear the echo of every human heart that stands condemned before God. Who is the Lord? that I should obey him. The Passover may be the climax of the Exodus story, but remember the whole gospel narrative is playing out on these pages and the battle lines have been drawn. The remainder of chapter five is what happens to the Israelites as a result of Moses' request. It's almost like Pharaoh's pushing his weight around even more. Do you think he felt threatened? I think at a minimum, he certainly felt undermined. His words just drip with pride. Remember, the Pharaoh was considered deity in ancient Egypt, so his response makes sense that he would exert even more authority when being challenged by another god. And so we see the pattern of Pharaoh's actions repeating from what we observed in chapter 1. He senses a threat, and he oppresses the Israelites in an attempt to maintain control. In this case, he accuses them of being idle and makes them gather their own straw for brick making instead of supplying it. I imagine you probably had the same response as I did reading this, indignation over the injustice. We know how this story ends, but put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Just a few verses back, they were bowed before the Lord in worship because he had seen their affliction and sent a deliverer. Think of the relief that would have been. But now, instead of freedom, their lives have become even more bitter. It seems like a cruel joke. Can God really be trusted? I think we see evidence of this doubt in how the people respond. Notice they don't cry out to the Lord like they did previously. Instead, the foremen cry out to Pharaoh for relief as if grasping for some inner sense of decency or justice in him. 
But this Pharaoh knows nothing of justice because he's standing in rebellion against the righteous judge of the universe. When Pharaoh proves to be a dead end, the people turn against Moses and Aaron. If they can't find relief from oppression, maybe the placebo of blaming someone else will suffice. We don't have to guess how Moses is feeling right now. Verses 22 and 23 say, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I wonder, have you ever stepped out in faith only to have things blow up in your face? Have you ever cried out to God, I'm trying to obey you. Why is this so hard? Remember what Chris said a few weeks ago. We tend to think our sanctification journey with the Lord will be this straight, smooth path. But that is so often not his way. God is far too merciful and far too creative to let us work out sanctification on our own terms. The Lord's response to Moses in chapter 6 reminds me of how he previously dialogued with Moses on Mount Sinai. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try to pacify Moses' fears. Instead, he just steadily repeats his promises, constant and unwavering. Let's look at his response starting in verse 2. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Constant unwavering, sovereign of the universe. Yet in the following verse, we see that the people of Israel didn't listen to Moses because their spirit was so broken from the harshness of slavery. I think most of us could recall a time, or maybe you're living it right now, when you have tried to hold on to truth, but your circumstances are screaming a different story at you. Can God really be trusted? This seems like a cruel joke. God offers the remedy. It's calling to mind the unchanging character of God. Your circumstances don't change the truth that he is the same yesterday and today and forever. God gives them and gives us this model of looking back on his faithfulness so that we have the courage to believe in his future 
promises. Moses is obviously still struggling, as we see in verse 12. Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. It's here that we hit the pause button on the narrative, and the text breaks into this genealogy of Moses and Aaron. As much as we're tempted to skip over stuff like this, genealogies do matter. As you've likely heard before, family names and lineage were a big deal in those times. It's here that Moses and Aaron are proven to be of the tribe of Levi. This also anchors them firmly in history by connecting them to the Hebrew ancestry. And we also get the sweet little gift of their parents' names. Amram, which means exalted nation, and Jochebed, which means Yahweh is glory. This would have fallen with appropriate weight on Hebrew ears. It's essentially God's stamp of accreditation on his chosen messengers. The scene closes this week without resolution. Moses and the people are still living in limbo of unbelief and doubt. God declared what he would do, but it isn't playing out like anyone expected. Yet as the story unfolds, we will see evidence of who God is in his words and his deeds. There is no duplicity in him. I want to conclude by going back over the text, but this time specifically looking for Christ. We've studied this in its original context, so let's just go one step further to see how God was whispering of the coming Messiah. So flip back to where we began, and let's take a look at chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Does that verbiage in verse 19 sound familiar to you? Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. It's the very same wording as when God told Joseph and Mary it was safe to return home from Egypt. Those who had been seeking Jesus' life were dead. And so God called them back from exile. But I think there's more. Moses returns to the front lines of Egypt to fulfill his calling as deliverer. He's fearful and hesitant, even though God has graciously told him, the men who are seeking your life are dead. In contrast, the scriptures tell us that as the time drew near for Jesus' death, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, resolved in his mission. He mounted a donkey and returned to the front lines of Jerusalem, even though the men who were seeking his life were still very much alive. He is the true and better deliverer. From 422, he is the true and better son. In many ways, Israel failed to resemble God to the world. But Jesus was the spitting image of his heavenly father, the exact representation of his nature. From 426, he is the true and better bridegroom of blood. His bloody act of obedience cuts away our sin and absorbs the wrath of God. We are then bound to him in covenant union and together called his bride. From 428, he is the true and better prophet. He came not just bearing the words of God, but as the incarnate word of God. 
Through his speech and miraculous signs, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. From chapter 5, he is the true and better teacher. While the Pharisees used the law to pile burdens on the backs of the people, he extends the invitation, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And lastly, from chapter 6, he's the only true redeemer, purchasing mankind for God with his blood. All of God's promises find their yes in him. Because of his finished work, we can be certain of our inheritance to come. One day we will be ushered into that true and better promised land where we will dwell with him forever. Pray with me. O Christ, may you be glorified and magnified through this written word. What a privilege we have to be on this side of the cross, to know you as the true deliverer, the true redeemer, and to be able to call God our Father. Thank you for the story of the Exodus. I pray that, Spirit, you would just apply these truths to our heart. May we not leave your word unchanged. Transform us so that we look more and more like you. May we love you more deeply for having beheld you in your word today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.